Good evening. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> Last week, we ended the chapter 15 with Peter's declaration to Jesus' question, who do men say that I am? He said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus then asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter and said that flesh and blood did not reveal that to him, but it was a revelation from God, that it's not something that you can understand just by seeing. So the miracles weren't what gave him the understanding of who he was. It was the Spirit of God moving upon Peter, bearing witness that, no, you are the Messiah. And so... Jesus commended him, and he told him that on this truth, that he is the Messiah, he was going to build his church, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he gave them this understanding of power, whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he told them, don't tell anybody. And so they left with these great news, and now we pick up from that time on. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. This is verse 21. Suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The beginning of this verse from that time on gives us a suggestion that Jesus is making a turning point in his ministry here. He's turning things to point to his purpose, pointing to the fact that why he had come, telling his disciples what is going to take place. And so it's after this understanding that you are the Messiah that he makes the turn and says, well, this is what's going to happen. And he tells them four things that are going to take place. He says, we're going to Jerusalem, which in itself could be dangerous. In chapter 12, we knew that some of the Pharisees were out to kill him. There's been a lot of conflict with the Pharisees throughout his teaching their coming up to him, they're trying to challenge him, trying to trap him. And so we know going back to the heart of their faith to Jerusalem is going to bring issues. So we're going to Jerusalem. Then he tells them that they're going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are the religious people. Then he tells them that he must be killed. And then he tells them on the third day, be raised to life. What do you think their thoughts were 
when they heard this. Jesus has been doing amazing things. Feeding multitudes, healing everyone. There is this celebrative moment. You're the Messiah. The one we have been waiting for. You are him. And he confirms it. That's a revelation from God. Don't tell anyone. What, what were they thinking at that moment? We're with the Messiah. We're with the chosen one. Man, they must have been just elated. What's going to happen next? I can't even believe all the things that have been happening. What's he going to do? What's the Messiah going to do next? He's going to establish his kingdom. How's he going to do this? He's been talking about his kingdom all along. wonder what it's going to look like. We get to be part of it. We're here. We're his, his close-knit friends. This is like winning the lottery. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them and says, Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. I need to be turned over to the elders and the, the teachers of the law. I'm going to suffer under their hands. I have to die, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. Oh my gosh, their brains must have just been going inside out. Wondering, what does this mean? This isn't what we had in mind. And I think sometimes... We come to a place, too, where we have an understanding of what our life is going to be like. I'm following Jesus. I remember when Karina and I got married and we first had children. and We found out we were having twins. And we were so foolish, we were excited. We didn't know. And I had this idea of what being a father was going to be like and how wonderful it was going to be. And Corrine, no doubt, thought the children were going to rise up and call her blessed. You know, I mean, we just had this idea of this is what it's going to be like. Why? Because we're following Jesus and, and life is good when you follow Jesus, right? Yeah, it has to be. And at some point, I think in each of our lives, Jesus drops this bomb and says, it's not like you think. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over into their hands. I'm going to suffer under their hands. I have to die, but I'll rise again. And maybe your question would be, where does that leave me? And maybe tonight, you're in that place and you're wondering, okay, Jesus, I'm following you, but this is happening and this is happening and it's not going the way I planned. Where does that leave me? And so we're going to look at that tonight a little bit. Where does that leave us? And so let's pray. Father, as we continue through this chapter and look at these verses, Lord, we pray that your spirit would challenge our hearts. And reveal yourself, even as you did to Peter those years ago. Might your revelation come to us of who you are, of what you've done, and what you are doing. And may we find what that means to us. May we be open to how that is supposed to 
affect us? And what are we supposed to do with the truths that you lay out here for us tonight? God, there's some heavy words, some powerful and strong words that are are meant to shake us, to stir us, to cause us to to become sober-minded and think. And so our desire is that that would happen tonight as we continue moving forward. Wake us up, we pray, in Jesus' name. Well, we get a little bit of an idea of what happens and what they're thinking, because Peter, thank goodness, the one who gets revelations from God, steps in. He's going to let us know, basically, the mindset of what he thinks and probably some of the other disciples or what's going on. And so, verse 22, again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Just think about that. Just think about that. First of all, he pulls him aside. Jesus, come here. I need to talk to you. And then he rebukes him. One of the commentators was saying the literal translation was, pity yourself, Jesus. Oh my gosh. He rebuked him. And he said, no, this isn't going to happen. Never will it happen to you. Now let me ask you, what do you think Peter was thinking when he said this? Not like, what was he thinking? We, we know now looking back, and I'm sure he looked back too and said, what was I thinking? Like we've probably all done at some point. But what was he thinking when he said this, do you think? What was in his mind that would want him to pull Jesus aside, rebuke him? Why would he want to do that? Because this, I believe, gives us insight into where his mind is, where their mind was at that time. Any ideas? Tony? I think maybe that he was just saying like he wouldn't let that happen to him. He was looking too much. Okay. Lola, you can talk even though you raised your hand. <laughs> I'm going to keep teasing you. Yeah, they're definitely not understanding his purpose. And I, and I think you're right, Tony, because we know later he pulls out his sword, cuts off the servant's ear. I mean, he's there to protect Jesus. It's not like not under my watch kind of a thing. You know, I'm going to I'm here, Jesus. And I imagine Peter as a burly fisherman kind of a guy, you know, just kind of a, a big burly guy. And so him saying, no, I'm not I'm not going to allow that to happen. And, and pulling him aside and rebuking him too. Again, this isn't fitting with what they thought. And maybe he's like, Jesus, you need to stop talking like this. Okay. We're not going to let anything happen. You've got us with you. 
We're going to protect you. I know the the Pharisees, they're getting on your case, but we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. And, And Jesus, you're bringing us down. You know, don't talk this way around the other disciples. Why did he call them aside? He didn't want to talk to him in front of the other disciples, but he's probably saying, you know, you need to stop talking like this. The guys are starting to wonder about you. Are you really the Messiah? Me, I get revelations. I know you're the Messiah. I'm the one who said so. I I know what's going on, Jesus. But they're, you know, they're a little weak. You're you're causing them to stumble. Or or maybe he, he just wanted... to deal with his own insecurities. Maybe Peter didn't know how to deal with this. And it startled him, like, no, this can't happen. We're not going to let this happen. This is going against everything, like you were saying, that I had in mind of what's going to happen. You're the Messiah. You're going to set up your kingdom. We're going to be here with you. You're going to reign. We're going to reign with you. Everything's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. You're going to heal people, make food happen for free. It's going to be good. And so Jesus need to stop talking like this. This is never going to happen. I'm going to. And I believe with all my heart that Peter believed this with all his heart. I believe he was as sincere as you can get. When he pulled Jesus aside, rebuked him and said, I'm never going to let this happen to you. This is not going to happen. I don't think he could have been as m- any more certain than he was. And then, of course, Jesus' response. Thank you, Peter, for being so concerned about me. No, not quite. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, my goodness. What would you do if Jesus turned around and called you Satan? Oh, my goodness. Now, the word Satan means adversary. It's not like you're the devil, the person. He's saying you're an adversary. And he's calling him an adversary because... What Peter is doing is really the same thing that the devil did to Jesus in the wilderness. When he took him out to the wilderness, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms and said, I will give you all this if you just bow down and worship me. In other words, you you don't have to go the long way. We can make things easy, do things my way, bow, worship me, and I will give you the earth and all its kingdoms. I will give this up to you. And Jesus said, no, worship the Lord, the God, him only will you serve. He rebuked the devil then, he's rebuking him now, because what's happening how is he's urging Jesus to avoid the cross, which is what the original temptation in the wilderness was. You don't have to go to the cross. And this is something that was weighing heavy on Jesus' soul, We know that from our knowledge of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that he prayed three times, it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. We know that that took place, that he sweated, as it were, drops of blood, that it was a time of anguish for him. 
And so we know it was a difficult time. And here's Peter saying, hey, we're going to get around this. You don't need to go through the cross. And Jesus rebukes him and says, you're an adversary. And the reason why you're an adversary, you're a stumbling block to me because you're trying to keep me from doing what I am supposed to do, what my destiny is to do. You're giving me reason not to do it. And then he says, also, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. God's concerns versus human concerns. You see, Peter recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but he did not recognize the purpose the Messiah was here. That was still unclear. So he knew that the Messiah was supposed to come, but he didn't know why the Messiah was here. And and again, like you said, Lola, their idea was the Messiah was to bring an establishment, to deliver them from the Roman Empire, to usher in this kind of uh, recognition of of the kingdom. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But Jesus is saying, "You're, you're thinking about man. You're not thinking about God. You see, man's concerns are the things that are going to benefit man and and his physical well-being. God's concern were the things that were going to benefit men's souls to deal with men's sin, to deal with men's brokenness, to deal with the real cause. We like to put the band-aid on the broken arm and say, it looks a lot better now. I did my part. And God needs to come in and say, no, we need to We need to reset this. We need to take care of this. It's not good like it is. And so Jesus comes in and he wants to fix it for real. Peter, you just want it to look good. You just want the kingdom. You want me to do the things that would make you happy or seeming to make you and the people happy. That's not why I'm here. Jesus, you know, you knew I was the Messiah, but you don't know why I'm here. I think a lot of times we can do the same thing. Know Jesus, who he is, call ourselves by his name, Christian, but we actually can be an adversary to his cause. I remember one time there was this small home Bible study and one of the people who came brought a friend. And this guy came for the first time And I remember everyone kind of circled around the guy and started sharing with him. (laughs) Use the word sharing loosely. Because he wasn't sharing back. We were all just sharing at him, sort of. And I remember I had been studying a lot of apologetics, and so I I had all my ducks in a row, and I just started hammering him about why he needed to be a Christian and why this was the way that he needed to follow and how he had to deal with his sin. And I was just nailing him. And in my mind, everything I said was so right on. I was talking about the Messiah, but I was not representing Jesus well at all. I was very argumentative. I was very bullying in how I was handling it. I was coming across mean. He would say something, and I would put it down and make it look stupid because I had the knowledge of how to, and I felt good about it. 
And I remember finally I, I laid out this discourse and I said, this is it. And without this, you know, you cannot live a fulfilled life. You will constantly be empty. I don't remember all the words, but I finally just kind of looked at him and said, this is it. You're going to be lost without this truth. And he just says, well, good for you. And he left and walked out. And when he said that, it was as if the Spirit of God just slapped me upside the head and said, who do you think you are? You do not represent me. Get behind me, you adversary. He didn't say those words, but that's how I felt. Like, you are not representing me at all. But I know you're the Messiah. I, I declared all these things truthfully. I, I know the right stuff. Peter knew the right things about Jesus, but he wasn't clear on how it was supposed to take place. And I think many times Christians fall into the same place. We have the truth, but the way we yield it isn't wise. And sometimes we can find ourselves as being adversaries to the cause of Christ instead of being helpful to his mission and purpose. And it's something that's very, very important because Peter was sincere, but he had missed the boat here. So much so that he got rebuked, rebuked hard. And this rebuke starts a dialogue that Jesus needs to now deal with them. Because what he's trying to do here is get them to understand now his purpose. That's why he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hand of the elders, the priests, and the, the, the teachers of the law. I, I'm going to be yielded over to them, suffer under their hands, die. I want you guys to know what's happening. This is my purpose. It's not catching me by surprise. This is why I'm here. And so that turn takes place. He starts to disclose to them his purpose. Now that you know who I am, you need to know why I'm here because it's not what you think. And I think a lot of times we get the information, Jesus is the Lord. Great, I'm so excited about that news. But then we don't go further and say, okay, so what am I supposed to do with this news? How am I supposed to share this news? How am I supposed to represent Jesus truthfully, accurately? And so many times we come off like I did to that poor guy that day, just brutal, uncompassionate, uncaring, unsympathetic, and not like Jesus at all. And so Jesus is now trying to take them out of this mindset of who the Messiah is and to who the Messiah really is right now, because their minds were not clear in this in any way. In verse 24, he says then to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, this is rabbinical language 
This is that of a rabbi talking to his students, to his disciples. Remember, a disciple is a learner. More specifically, someone who is learning from their rabbi. That's what disciple means, a learner. And so he says, if you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to learn from me and be like me, because that's what a disciple was supposed to be, someone who studied his teacher so he could be like his teacher. And so his language is very clear to them. If you're going to be like me, if you're really my students and you're trying to be like me, which is what they were trying to do, which is what Jesus was training them to do, which is what we desire to do, to be like Jesus. If you're going to be my disciples, my learners, my students, if you're going to be like me, he tells them first two things. You need to deny yourself and you need to pick up your cross. Both of these statements suggest a crisis of change. The language is that of an eros. This is something that needs to happen. This is a decision that needs to make. This is something you need to do. This is specific. You need to deny yourself. To deny yourself means to think not of yourself, to not regard yourself. And we all know what it's like to some degree to have to deny ourself. If you're parents, you know what it's like to deny yourself. You're sitting there at the table and there's just one muffin left. And one of the kids says, can I have it? But you really wanted it. Yes, go ahead, son. It's fine. Away, happiness. You know, take the muffin. It's yours. You deny yourself. And in so many other ways. I mean, that's a silly example. But denying ourselves means to give up the things that we want for that which someone else wants. And so one of the things that's required, if you're going to be my follower is you need to deny yourself. The second thing, the decision that needs to be made up, is you need to take up your cross. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. There is a death that is in your future as well. And you need to recognize that, that there has to come a place where you give up your life. Now, these are strong words. And this would be riveting the disciples. When Jesus stands up and says that you need to deny yourself and you need to pick up your cross, he's going to be thinking, oh my gosh, pick up my cross to follow you? And you see, there comes a place if we are going to be Christ's followers, his disciples, there comes a place where each of us makes this decision, where we say, you are God, your ways are true, I need the life that you give. And so I give up the life that I have for the life that you offer. It's a moment where we 
confess, I need you. And he goes on and kind of illuminates this a little bit further. He tells them that they need to follow him. Now, the idea of following him, this statement is in the present tense. In other words, it's a continuous action. It's emphasizing a lifelong assignment that all of us have. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, make that decision, and then the rest of your life follow through with that decision. So there comes the moment of significance where you say, you're God, I'm not, I need to surrender myself to you, die to myself, live for you, and the rest of my life is given for you to follow after you in this continuing way. And he continues that thought with this illustration. It kind of illuminates all the things that he's talking about. Verse 25, when he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Famous words. Curious words. Seems contradictory. And it's amazing because once again, Jesus seems to think that the thing that we need more than anything else is life. And so many of us are thinking, but I've got life. And Jesus keeps saying, no, what you need is life. But look at Jesus, I'm alive. No, you need life. Well, aren't I alive? No, you're not. You're existing, but you are not alive. And you will never be alive until you deny yourself, until you pick up your cross, until you lose your life. Then you will find life. To get to the life that God is talking about, you need to lose your life. You need to deny yourself, make that decision, die to living for your own purposes, your own desires, and make the choice, I'm going to live for you. When I lose my life for your sake, then I will find it. If I try and find my own life, I will find that I'm actually losing it. I'm dying, even though I think I'm alive. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have it, have life, and that you might have it to the full. That's why I'm here, so that you can have life. And it's the most difficult thing trying to tell people that they need life when they think they're alive. How do you make them know? How do you tell a person who is blind what it is to see? How do you get them to understand? And so many of us are in that place where we just don't understand. What is he talking about when he says, I need to die. I need to surrender my life to him to find it for his sake. Otherwise, I don't have it. He's bringing us to this decision and challenging us to follow in his steps and to have this vision. Remember, there's a turning point taking place here. Jesus is now teaching his disciples to be like him, but it's in a different way. It's in this way of sacrifice. It's in this way of servitude. It's in this way of giving. It's not just in the way of loving, reaching out. Remember, he reached out to those who were outsiders, those who were foreigners, the woman who was estranged, a foreigner who came, 
the multitudes who were a mixed group that Jesus extended himself out to. Be like me in this way, now be like me in this way. Follow your rabbi like this and follow your rabbi like this. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give my life for yours. I want you to give your life so that you can have my life. And then he goes on and again gives a, a just intriguing statement. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, I'm not sure that the soul is just about salvation from judgment. I know it includes that. But the idea of the soul is the life, and it actually has to do with a a higher consciousness or a deeper life, a, a more important life, the important life, who you really are, the important you. And so Jesus is saying, what will a person give in exchange for the core of who they are? What's more important to you? Would it be better to gain the whole world but lose yourself? And you see, I think that's exactly what the world is doing. I think we try and get everything we can and we don't realize that we're slowly eroding the core of who we are. As we give ourselves over to pleasures and give ourselves over just to whatever we want, whatever our minds can think of, to the comforts and to the luxuries and to not care about anything but satisfying that appetite. We try and gain the world and we don't realize what we're starting to do is exchange our own soul. We're starting to give it away. We're starting to cut away those things that really make us who we are. You know, you think of a young child, I think of like a young girl who is someone's daughter. And you look at your daughter and you think of her and all the dreams and beauty that you see in her from the time she was a little girl. And she she wakes up singing Disney songs or whatever. Songs that she's heard and you've heard on the video over and over and over again. And she's singing, you know, the Beauty and the Beast or Little Mermaid or going on and and all these things. And you just see her and you think, she's got such a precious soul. And then to see her grow up and as she gets older, if she starts getting into the wrong group of people and maybe they're using drugs and maybe they're living loose. And all of a sudden you see what is just a precious, precious soul starts to, to decay. And there's no longer a song in her heart. Now there's a burden. She, she looks older than she is. I remember being asked to go visit a young man's daughter. She must have been 16 years old, somewhere around that. And I knew him from church years ago. And her, she was actually in a psychiatric ward because she had OD'd on some drugs and was having a lot of mental problems. And I remember going in to see her and she was smoking. She was chain smoking like crazy and her hands were shaking. And she looked so much older than she really was. I remember just being struck 
by this not being that young, brilliant, bright-eyed, beautiful little girl that I used to know who was running around the hallways, skipping and dancing and laughing and having fun. I mean, she was just a beautiful girl, and now she was just a shell. And I think of Jesus' words, what is a profit if you gain the world, but if you lose your soul? If you lose what makes you really who you are, what good is it to have? And what can you give in exchange for that that's worth who you really are? And I wonder if sometimes we're deceived into these kinds of things, thinking if I get a little bit more of the world, not realizing that sometimes we try and get more, but to get more we have to give more of who we really are. And we start losing ourselves, our own souls. And so these are haunting words that Jesus says. And then in verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then we will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, Jesus is saying there is going to be a time of judgment. There is going to come a time when the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels and he's going to bring this judgment. Now, what we think, and I'm going to talk about this, this is actually the focus of what we're going to talk about Sunday morning as we continue our series in the kingdom, this beautiful mess, but our thought is chronology. When's that going to happen? When, when is he coming back? And so already our minds start thinking, end times, we're looking for the last days. But you see, this was already what they were thinking. All he's saying, the time is going to come where I am going to bring judgment. There is going to be that time. It's just not at this time. And you see, what's taking place here now is Jesus is challenging their beliefs. He's challenging their beliefs to what they are looking forward to. And he's saying that time will come, but it's just not like you're thinking. Turn with me to Psalm 96. There are consequences to losing or keeping our life. And that is one day we'll be held accountable for what we do with our life. There is judgment for what we do. Are you a person who is living for yourself, using people to gain? Whatever I can do to get, I'm going to do. Or are you a person who gives of themselves so that the Lord can be seen in them? And who we are, we're going to be judged for those things. How we give, and everyone's going to be judged individually. But in chapter 96 of Psalms, 96, verse 10. The psalmist says, now remember, these are songs. These are things that they sung about. These were their hopes, their dreams. This is where the disciples' minds were. The Messiah, the kingdom of God, this is where they were at. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. 
Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. This is what they were thinking. This is where their minds were. The Messiah is here. The judge is here. He's going to judge in equity. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge righteously. He's going to deliver us from the oppression that is all around us. This is what they were thinking. This is where they were at. And Jesus says, I'll get there. The time is going to come. But understand this. That judgment that's going to come, it starts with you right now. Because if you have your life and try and find it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. What will you give for your own soul? I will come and I am going to judge. I'm going to judge in the Father's glory every person for what they have done. And you see, now he's bringing them that, back to that place where they're going to understand, I am going to bring judgment. I am going to do what you know the Messiah is to do. But it's not now. And then almost out of the blue is this verse 28. We'll have some fun with this one. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What do you think that means? Because this has caused all kinds of trouble. People have used this verse to say, well, it didn't happen. Or what did he mean by it? Any thoughts on this verse? Yeah, it says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Like I've always said, I think a lot of people didn't really believe Jesus until he rose from the dead. Okay. So the resurrection. Any other thoughts? Okay, kind of like the second final death. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was when, um, maybe he was referring to when, wasn't it Peter, James, and John who saw him? Transfigured. Transfigured. Yep, that happens in verse seven, or chapter 17. Maybe he was referring to, to that incident. Mm -hmm. When he rose again. All good answers? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, basically, I mean, there are three that are kind of the most common. One is that it's the transfiguration, that it's referring to that. But most of them have problems with that because um, of how it talks about coming in his kingdom. Because the transfiguration, how does that really deal with coming in his kingdom? It shows him in his glory, but it's there with Moses and Elijah. 
And so a lot of them have issues with that, but it is interesting that that event happens right afterwards. And so that's one thought. The other thought is the resurrection, that when he rose again, it was a sign of his kingdom moving forward. Again, remember, our idea of kingdom is different than their idea of kingdom. Our idea of kingdom is, you know, something that is established, something that is permanent that we see. You know, the Roman Empire was a kingdom or the United Nations or the kingdom in Europe. You know, they have a monarch kind of a kingdom thing. Our, our idea of a kingdom is a little bit different than their idea of a kingdom because their idea of a kingdom wasn't just a physical place. It was uh, judgment and equity. It was righteous reigning. It was justice. That was part of the kingdom. And so the transfiguration, the resurrection, and the third, the one I lean most to is actually Pentecost. When the Spirit of God came upon the church, and that is actually moving the kingdom forward. That is part of this coming of his kingdom. That's when his reign is now come here in the individual's the believer's life. And, and that's what I lean to just based on the words of his kingdom moving forward and I seeing it in people. What I think is interesting is I, I believe Jesus is trying to bring comfort to his disciples because he just leveled them. Hey guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And they're like, what about us? That's not what we had in mind and he challenges them, listen, if you're going to still follow me, this is what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. And literally it did all of them, save John. It's going to cost you your life, but that life that you give is actually going to be life that you find. And what's more important, if you gain the world, which is what they were probably thinking, and you lose who you are, are you going to give what's important for anything? And Jesus says, don't worry, I will judge. And I'm telling you guys here, there's some here that won't taste of death until they see the kingdom. In other words, you guys, you're going to understand. You're going to get it. And it's going to be good. And I think that's what we need to end on tonight. You guys... Whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties you're facing, whatever struggles are there that are happening to you, with you, maybe even in you physically, those things that you have to deal with, remember who you really are. Remember what you really are. Remember your soul. Remember that Jesus is calling us to be like him, and that call is to give our life up for him, every one of us, to lose our life so that we can find real life. He's calling us to this, that we can't try and get as much as we can to, to save ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to lose who we really are. That he will bring justice at some point in some time, again, chronology is not the point here. Righteousness is.
judgment is. Righteous judgment is the point. And then as he tells them, you guys, you're going to get it. You won't taste death, some of you here, until you see what I'm talking about. When it becomes apparent. And again, I believe the reason they will see it is because they're going to realize that's us. We are now moving the kingdom of God forward. Let's pray. Lord, I think these are some of your most powerful words. Um, they are so central to who you are and to, and to what this life with you is about. It's about surrendering our lives. It's about dying to ourselves. It's about denying ourselves and picking up that cross. Lord, it's about not trying to gain the whole world and recognizing really who we are, what we were created for. We've been created for you. And we will only find our purposes in you. And so I pray, Lord, that as we hear you speak to your disciples, you are speaking to your disciples still with these words, that you are challenging us and our thoughts of who you are and who we want you to be. And when you don't do the things that we want you to do and life doesn't go the way we expect it to go, Lord, maybe what we're really trying to do is make you live in our kingdom instead of us live in yours. That we want you to follow our rules, our ideas, instead of us live to yours. And Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to be aware of our own framework and thinking that keeps us from understanding what it is you've accomplished, what it is you're doing and desire to do with us right now, that we are a part of your movement, that we are your expression, that we are your church, that as you gave us an example to reach out, we are to reach out. As you gave us an example to live sacrificially, we are to live sacrificially. As you gave yourself for us, we are to give ourselves for others as well. And so may we follow that example. Help us, Lord. This is hard. Who do we give ourselves to? Anybody? Lord, you rebuked the Pharisees. There are Pharisees among us today. You didn't give yourself to just anybody. You gave yourself to a cause, to a purpose, and to the people who were submitted to that purpose. Lord, help us to distinguish that. Help us to balance these things out. Help us to know how to live this out. And Lord, may we not try and gain the world and lose our soul. Father, may we recognize what is really important, and may we nurture that. I do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.